is it so important that you want to contact the governments of our Earth? Because of death. Because all you of Earth are idiots. Now you just hold on, Buster. No, you hold on. get this audio back to monster kid radio headquarters i will have played a song before you hear this or at least the start of a song the song is green slime are coming it's from the band the tiki creeps the album is invaders from beyond the wall of surf of course they gave us the okay to play their music here on the show the show being monster kid radio the podcast that we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear i'm your host writer producer derek m cook welcome to the show How's everybody doing? You know, the song Green Slime Are Coming I thought was appropriate given the movie we're covering today, The Green Slime. And I'm not doing it by myself. I'm being joined by Chris McMillan and Jeff Polier. We're going to talk about The Green Slime here in a little bit. Why am I recording from the Monster Kid Radio Mobile? Well, I'm actually on my way right now to a planning meeting for the panels at this upcoming Living Dead Horror Convention here in Portland, Oregon. It's happening in November It's the first annual Living Dead Horror Con, and I'm on the committee of people helping to determine what panels we're going to offer at the convention. And of course, I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure Monster Kid content is represented. Now, of course, we've got Barbara Steele as one of the guests. We've got Butch Patrick and Pat Priest as some of the guests. There's another guest that I know about that hasn't been announced yet. But this person is definitely in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. So I'm hoping that the presence of these Monster Kid, well, I'm going to call them icons, will lend itself to having some panels that are relevant to people like you and me. Of course, I'm also hoping to be a panelist, maybe even a moderator. We'll see what happens at the meeting. In fact, I'll probably tell you about the meeting after we get out. After we talk about the green slime with Chris McMillan and Jeff Pullier. Right after this... And this is good timing because uh, I'm about at the meeting. internationally known special effects staff presents an epic-making science fiction film starring many of Hollywood's top stars. In Latitude Zero, you will see Utopia, a mysterious underwater city where the greatest scientific minds in the world have been assembled. Is this what I think it is? Diamond. But is it real? Everything in Latitude Zero is real. Here we go. (laughs) Malik the murderer has a diabolical plan to conquer the world. The submarine Alpha of Latitude Zero attacks Malik's submarine of death. The Black Shark. 
will see futuristic weapons and the battle of Blood Rock, Malik the Murderer's base of evil. Film productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplays is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. produced amid pagan palaces on Mediterranean shores where Hercules lived, loved, and awed his fellow men. Here is fascinating drama, epic in scope, of palace intrigue and murder, of deeds reckless and heroic, the great curse and labors laid upon Hercules. May the curse of the gods be upon you. May the hatred of men persecute you until you have paid for the blood of Ephesus. A love so great it defied the gods. Hercules, a legend undimmed in thousands of years, all here to bring you thrill upon thrill. The voyage to distant lands, the attack of the monkey man, the dragon monster guarding the golden fleece, the love-starred warrior women on the island of Amazon, who knew so well how to entice and tease and kiss before they killed. The Vengeance of the Sea God. The Battle for the Crown of Joko.
this earth. The 21st century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror. The green slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the green slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. in space against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible berserk world of Green considered listeners opening up this conversation with a little bit of singing but yeah it's my, my you don't want to hear that the movie itself is terrifying enough we're talking about the green slime and i'm doing it with chris mcmillan from the shadow over portland and, hey jeff, and jeff polier from the polier graveyard and a few other places we'll get to that here in a second jeff chris welcome to the show thank you derek Thank you. I guess I jumped the gun on the high there. That's Sorry. That, uh, <laughs> editing. I'll make us all sound awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. You are the king of editing. <laughs> so Chris has been on the show before. We've heard him talk about Creature from the Black Lagoon and a number of other topics. Jeff, this is your first regular episode of Monster Kid Radio, so I hope you enjoy your stay. Well, yes, it is. And, and you know, I want to thank you because we're doing this movie at my request. Yeah. So thank you. I, I want to talk a little bit about how that happened. So we're talking about the green slime, and I know Chris loves the green slime. And then I'm, I'm thinking I want to get Jeff on the show. I keep running into him at the Joy Cinema Weird Wednesday, and I asked him what movie does he want to cover, and he brings up the green slime. I'm like, okay, we got to get the two of you guys together. <laughs> we got to talk about the green slime. It's such a fun movie, and you two have some experience, some history with this film as well. I'm assuming I do, and it's because I grew up here in Portland. And, you know, I'm 42 now. When I was growing up, there were only five channels in Portland. There was the three networks. That's right, kids. Once upon a time, there were three networks. Uh, <laughs> there were the three networks. There was PBS. And then there was our local independent station, uh, KPTV, which is these days is the Fox affiliate. But back then it was an independent station. And it seemed like they were playing the green slime all the time. Uh, so, you know, as a sci-fi fan, as a kid, you know, watching Star Trek and Star Wars and uh, the original Battlestar Galactica, 
you know, I would watch any science fiction that came on, you know, if I was allowed to. And so I watched The Green Slime as often as I could. And up until getting ready for this podcast, having these fond memories of it, I probably hadn't seen it in 30 years. Wow. But uh, it jived with my memories. And we'll get into that, I'm sure. (laughs) So how about you, Chris? I actually remember seeing this as a kid when I was living in California back in the 60s. My folks weren't too into letting me watch late night horror shows, you know, because I was a little young. But the Green Slime was always on in the afternoon, on you know, <laughs> at least once a year. So I got to see it there for the first time, and I remember just being floored by how how cool and yet silly it was. And then we moved to Portland about the same time you were talking about, um, mm-hmm. and KPTV just every year the Green Slime would show up. <laughs> You know, so you'd see it in the TV guide. Oh, it's that time of year for the green slime. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, yeah, I just remember watching it and loving it. I'm kind of a late comer to it, so I'm a little jealous of you two having grown up with the green slime. I only saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. So, you know, I've got a slightly different perspective, but I think we all three just love the hell out of this thing, right? Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and now that I now that I have it on DVD, you know, it's not going to be another 30 years until I watch it. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be watching this once a year at least. Oh, at least. Oh, you have to. Yeah. This one's a lot of fun. Do we know a lot about the production? What brought this movie about? I admittedly don't have a lot of experience with 1960s Italian sci-fi. Well, Italian, Japanese, American produced. This is a mishmash. This is an MGM film. But it was filmed in Japan by a Japanese director. And this is what I found really amazing. It's the same director as Tora, Tora, Tora. Yeah. When I was going through IMDb and saw that, I'm like, really? Because I remember that being a really well-respected movie. And I'm going, wow, the same guy who did that, uh, is, which is a Kinji Fukasaku. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that, that he did both. Again, it's one that KBTV showed a lot in my childhood. Oh, really? <laughs> but but it's one that my dad would actually want to watch, where he had no interest in watching the Green Slime with me. No, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we have American money, movie being made in Japan, mostly American cast, although I, I think the, uh, the actress who played Lisa, the, the doctor, and the romantic interest, uh, she's Italian. Mm-hmm. And hubba hubba. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I did read on IMDb that uh, once we get to the actual, the monsters with the tentacles, those were Japanese children in those suits. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's, so that's, uh, like, that's like the only Japanese people in the movie are kids in the rubber monster suits. When I was reading about this um, a little bit, they, they were saying how, um, you know, Studios back then were doing this co-producing thing with by offering money to get a product or, or a film shot in another country to keep their investment low and to take advantage of some tax credits and stuff. Mm-hmm. You wonder if it was also because they knew in the United States they would never be able to put school children in those monster suits. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 1968, they might have still gotten away with it. That's oh, true. that's possible. True. Possible. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I read that, and it's like, there are kids in there? Yeah. Because <laughs> that looks like a ton of latex. They look really heavy. Yeah. 
Although, really, if I was a grade school kid and somebody said, okay, Derek, I want you to put on this monster suit and wave your arms around and go after these people in a monster movie, I would have been there in a second. Jump I, at it. Yeah. Jump at the chance. Yes. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, I would, too. I think my mom would have, you know, be going, no, 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 yeah. but it'd be like, come on, mom. Oh, like, mom, like, come on. Now, even now, I jump at well, the chance. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. So this film was actually shot at... Is it Toei? Am I saying that correctly? Toei Studios? I don't know how to pronounce it either, so we'll I, just I, have to say sorry, guys. Even <laughs> how Japanese vowels are pronounced, I would guess Tohei. Okay. But that's just a guess. So this is the studio that's responsible for things like Common Rider and what ultimately uh, we made the Power Rangers out of. Uh, Super Sente. So this is a company that's still around today, and I love that there's a, a weird connection between Green Slime and the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's also one. There's also the connections to all the Godzilla movies because the guys who who were the special effects directors, mm-hmm. Akira Watanabe and Yokio Manota. I, I'm hoping I get those names somewhat right. All worked with Subaraya. Hmm on uh, the Toho Godzilla films. Mm-hmm. So these guys actually worked with E.J. Subaraya at, at one point in their uh, careers. I love that this is just such a big mishmash of different cultures, I suppose you could say, because you've got the MGM money, the American actors, the Italian extras with the dubbing, the Japanese <laughs> monsters, all of this. And then that wonky opening theme song that just seems to come out of the blue from nowhere. <laughs> This is such a fun film with all this stuff going on. I, I'm glad that you guys wanted to talk about it because man, this is something I should have talked about a long time ago on Monster Kid Radio. <laughs> There's four credits given to IMDb for writing, one for story to Ivan Reiner, and then there's three for a screenplay. Tom Rao, Charles Sinclair, and Bill Finger. That's Bill not, Finger. That's not is that? the Bill Finger. Really? Yeah. Bat, Batman Bill Finger. So for those who don't know, Legally, Batman is always just credited to Bob Kane because Bob Kane, frankly, was a little smarter when it came to his contract. But Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Almost everything that you know of from the history of Batman, Bill Finger had a hand in creating that and was probably more important to it than Bob Kane was. And he worked on the screenplay for this movie. Which actually explains a lot because there is a definite comic book sensibility to this movie. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could just see it in the in the set designs and everything. I mean, yeah, you know, they just look like a comic book. There's one scene early on where they're getting ready to launch the ship off to the asteroid, and this guy's carrying around uh, some sort of gas canister that's painted in a red and white checkerboard. <laughs> and I mean that it's like, oh my god, they're just making a comic book right here. <laughs> well, and then later on, we have the air tanks on the back of the astronauts' costumes that look like ketchup and mustard bottles. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not that they're that small, audience. It's just that they are that yellow and that red. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had no idea this. I mean, I saw the name, and it was, it's it's billed as William Finger, but yeah, that's wow. That's the guy. The direction is pretty solid. The cast. Jeff started talking about the cast. Do we want to talk about Lisa first? Luciana Paluzzi. Paluzzi? Yeah. She was in Thunderball. She was a Bond girl. She was the Spectre agent who almost kills Bond 
in Thunderball. I know that'll make uh, repeated Monster Kid Radio guest Scott Morris very happy to hear us talk about <laughs> Bond because he loves his James Bond. Yeah, no, I remember seeing her in that movie, and yeah, uh, in Thunderball, it's like, my God, she almost killed James Bond, mm-hmm. and we're talking the Sean Connery James Bond, <laughs> the one that it takes a lot to take out. Yeah. Yes, and she was in more spy stuff too. She was in The Man from Uncle. She was in The Girl from Uncle. She was in a movie called To Trap a Spy. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she just had this femme fatale thing going, and casting directors ran with it. Mm-hmm. She definitely has a good look, and I mean, all kidding aside, she is a very attractive woman. And she does hold the camera. So, I mean, she does have a really good look. She was in a movie called Tragic Ceremony, which is a horror movie that uh, we at Dorado Films own and Ooh. have screened a couple of times here in the Portland area. I love the Italian spy movies, the low-budget bonds they're called sometimes, because you see all these wonderful actors and actresses just shining in a film that really they have no right to because, I mean, they're low-budget movies. But <laughs> movies like OSS-117, Double Agent, which I have seen. She's in that. She's great in that. She's not the lead, but still. I mean, she's just more than a competent actor. I really enjoyed what she brought here mm-hmm. to the film. Yeah. So I really enjoyed her. But she's not the lead. The lead are the two men because that's it's, the 60s. It's the 60s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the two men we have got are our lead guy, Commander Rankin, played by Robert Horton. Well, I see. I had a problem with Commander Rankin because – like three quarters of the time, I heard them saying Commander Riker. Riker? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And I actually had to look it up. Folks, the DVD is so bare bones, there's not even subtitles. Yeah. Uh, it is the movie and nothing else, yeah. which is actually kind of refreshing in today's you know special features that take up two extra discs in addition to the movie. <laughs> it was actually kind of neat to have just the movie. But, uh, yeah, it is uh, Robert Horton as Commander Jack Rankin. See, whenever I hear Rankin, I immediately go to Rankin and Bass. Oh! <laughs> and, and that's what I heard. Every time I heard somebody say that, it's like, oh. Well, he's just about as animated. Oh! <laughs> oh! Oh! I, I'm giving you, nobody can see this because this is an audio podcast, but I'm giving you a thumbs up right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you <laughs> much. <laughs> much like Commander Rankin seemed to give. Yes, everybody in the film. That was his signature move. Thumbs up. <laughs> oh, God. I, that got... That, that's so annoying. I mean, he's in an infirmary. This guy's hand's been damaged. He's like, how's your hand? It'll be fine. And he gives the guy the thumbs up. It's like going, yeah, I still have a thumb. You don't. <laughs> Almost expected there to be a sound effect out of you. Like, ding, when the thumb popped up. <laughs> ding. Well, the, character, the character's uh, humanity is, is so, I mean, he's so, de- he's so detached. It's like, that's as close as he can get to being supportive. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. this is a thing people do to be supportive, so I will do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's this weird hesitation, this robotic kind of hesitation, right before he does it, too. Like, he's got to think about it. Yes. And then he does it. And the pacing, the timing is just off enough to make it seem really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other man, Commander Vince Elliott, played by Richard Jekyll, did a lot of television, as did Robert Horton. I'm not overly familiar with either men's work uh, outside of this, outside of the genre stuff they've done. So I don't I don't know much about him either. But he also seemed a little stunted in the film. It's like you go into outer mm-hmm. space, you have to be you, – you lose some of your emotions or something along the way because both of them seemed a little stunted, a little emotionally broken. With Commander Elliott, you know, I think a lot of it was – the stress of having to be with Commander Rankin again. Yeah. Uh, because these two have a history. It's not a good history. 
and this guy that he doesn't like at all has been put in charge of uh, him and the mission. So I, I excuse Commander Elliot a lot more than I excuse Commander Rankin, who is pretty much just a dick. Oh, yes. In fact, he could not be a bigger dick if he had been Commander Dick Rankin instead of Jack Rankin. Wow. I mean, uh, okay. <laughs> I watch this show, and I really don't like Rankin either. I mean, yeah. he's, he's just, su- and like you said, he's just such a dick. But if you watch, the main tension between Elliot and Rankin is that Rankin doesn't feel Elliot's fit for command because he sacrificed ten men to go save one. You know, and it's like, we don't know if it was a really stupid idea or actually was a really good idea that suddenly went to shit when Elliot made that call. We just know that Rankin figures, "Eh, it's only one guy, he can go. (laughs) And that's pretty much his attitude through the whole movie. And not only that, he's the type of military person that blames everyone else. Yeah. You watch the film. There's a scene where the green slime gets on one of the space jackets when they're on the asteroid, or spacesuits when they're on the asteroid. Mm-hmm. Rankin causes it. And yet, when they find the green slime creatures on the space station, he's holding the doctor responsible. Yeah, Dr. Halverson, I think yeah. he is. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, dude, you were the one who did it. Yeah. You know, there's a scene where they discover that because Rankin wanted everything decontaminized three times, which is totally against protocol... You know, that allowed the green slime to grow into the the monster that it became. And there's a moment when they're talking about that. You know, it's Elliot, the Doctor, and Rankin, where Rankin's kind of looking a little surprised, like, oh, my God, I, I did that. But that look goes away, and I figure it's because he's going to blame Elliot for it again. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, he's kind of right about Elliot, because almost any decision that Elliot makes turns out bad. Yeah, but to me, that was a plot thing. You know, I mean, Elliot made the right calls, even though they turned out bad. You know, finding life on an asteroid, uh, not a bad idea to take it back with you before you blow the shit out of the asteroid. Trying to capture the creature alive, probably what you should be doing if you're exploring space. Well, they're not exploring space, though. They're in a well, stationary station. That is true, but yeah. you know what I mean. If you're, if you're out in space and you come across alien life, you should really kind of try to preserve it. I but, I mean, I see that point of view, but then I don't know. I mean, this is also what 68. So yeah. Star, so I guess Star Trek is out there. So, I mean, there is that idea of, you know, boldly going and exploring and all that, but Jeff's right too. It's a stationary space, you know, space station. I don't know. I see both sides of it, mm-hmm. but Rankin, I think, <laughs> Rankin has one side that he sees the entire time, and it's his. Oh, yeah. And, you know, regardless of what Elliot does or or what the doctor wants to do, the commander, Riker, Rankin, Dick Rankin, (laughs) is is going to make probably the worst decision possible. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, not the worst decision. Well, commit the worst action possible. Inadvertently, not really realizing it's his fault. And then, like Mm -hmm. Chris says blame it on somebody else seriously he really does but it was kind of interesting in doing some research i came across a uh, article by a Stuart Goldbraith the fourth i okay. hope i get his name right on um the website dvd talk and he spoke of talking with uh, the director of this film oh and the director yeah. regarded the story as a parallel to the u.s military's ineffectiveness in their vietnam war Oh, 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, the author said, well, there's nothing in the film that supports it. But if you look at all the action that Rankin does, it doesn't solve the problem. It just keeps making it worse, which is kind of, you know, and he's playing it by the book. He's got the military page book open. He's going, okay, in the event, first we shoot. And if that doesn't work, we keep shooting. Okay, let's do that. Um, and everything he does, whether he, you know, I mean, you can say that, you know, he didn't know, but everything he does makes the situation that much worse. It's the quagmire that uh, the military got stuck in. Well, and it really does, up. you know, later in the film, it does get to the point where it's, it's that old Vietnam trope. We had to burn the village <laughs> to save it. Yeah, literally. I mean, it really happens twice. <laughs> Because yeah. first they destroy the sea sphere habitat. I don't remember yeah. what they call the section. Sea section. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then they end up destroying the entire station. Yeah. Which let's take a brief second and talk about special effects. Because Please. the special effect of uh, first, you know, of destroying the C section. So the space station is a ring around a central core. Mm-hmm. Very early Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there's globes around the outer ring. One of these globes at one point is destroyed to try and destroy the creatures. And it's a really well-realized special effect on a very bad model. Oh, yeah. But then at the very end of the movie, in order to make sure the creatures are destroyed, they get the rockets of the station firing and throw it into the Earth's atmosphere so it burns up in the atmosphere. And it is a beautiful shot. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, it is really well done. And it, it reminded me of 30-some years later, the Enterprise burning up in the atmosphere of the Genesis planet. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. interesting. And those were all really well done. The sets were all very well done. You know, we talked about this being about the same time as Star Trek. The mm-hmm. sets are comparable with Star Trek. By today's standards, they look kind of silly. But if you really think about it for 1968, they were really well done. A lot of the model work looked like models. Yeah, There's no way around it. They looked like models. Mm-hmm. But when you look at them, though, they're well detailed. The space station itself is probably the worst model in it. Mm-hmm. But the rockets and stuff, if you, know, if you look at them, this was filmed to be on a big you know, 35-foot or whatever screen. And they really didn't skimp on the detail work on the models. So it may still be, obviously, a toy. But it is... It is something that is meant to be looked at. Um, so, you know, I, I give them props there. Yeah, and, and, you know, the comic book sensibility that these models really give the film kind of really help it. I mean, yes. this is just supposed to be a lighthearted, well, I mean, it gets dark at times with the monsters and I wouldn't some of call the it deaths. that lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, it's not that lighthearted. But, you know, I mean, it's like the difference between uh, Gojira and some of the later Godzilla films. Hmm. You know, the original Godzilla was dark and had this frightening, you know, terrifying aspect to it. And some of the later ones, you know, were lighthearted romps compared to that. Hmm. And I think that's what they were going for in this. They weren't trying to make it serious. They were just trying to make a fun, entertaining film. And it didn't have to be as detailed as, you know, you might expect, you might want. I really liked the color scheme and the layout. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeff mentioned, you know, comparing it to Star Trek. And I think that's apropos for sure. Because the classic Trek has this awesome retro, well, retro for us now, feel 
the colors, the the production design, the way things are built. And I loved the sets in this as well for that same reason. The models eh, sometimes are lacking, but they are incredibly detailed when they need to be. I do smile whenever I see like a rocket flying through space and you can see the smoke coming out of the back kind of rising up because yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens a couple of times in this, but so what? (laughs) It's part of the genre. It's part of, you know, the retro feel that we love about these movies, but I do really like the model work in this and I love the monster design. I thought they looked really good as well. Oh yeah. They were look great. I thought as slime, the slime effects, yes, whether it was just slime itself or whether it was the pulsing green stuff, those looked amazing. Mm -hmm. The creatures themselves were ridiculous. Well, I loved them anyway. <laughs> I, I, I love them anyway, but kudos for not making them too humanoid. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure it went far enough away from being humanoid. I was um, I was scared of them when, when they first see the large form and it's lying down, but then as soon yeah. as it stood up, I'm like, oh, it's a guy in a suit. Yeah. 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 Um, but, I, I but, think I would have tried to eliminate having visible legs somehow. Yeah. And I certainly would have eliminated the eye. Um, now that's just in 1968 if i were doing this today i would eliminate the individual forms completely and i would just have the slime itself be the threat throughout the entire thing the slime taking over the station kind of like a blob thing yes okay well i could yeah i could see that because the slime effects really look good oh yeah yeah you know i mean when, when, when Doctor Halverson up the walls and stuff, wow! Yeah, and well, and when Doctor Halverson is showing them a little bit on the slide and he's applying the electricity to it to show it multiplying, mm-hmm. it's a simple practical effect, but it works so well and, and it looks great. Looks great. And when uh, mm-hmm. when the the suits in the decontamination chamber and we see the slime bubbling out of a, uh, the folded spacesuit again. It was basically green soap bubbles, but it looks so good. It was really well done. Yes. And almost everything in this movie is a practical effect. There's basically one animated effect. It's the force field around the ship when it's, mm-hmm. uh, the asteroid has blown up behind it. I think that's the only animation to the movie. Mm-hmm. Everything else is a practical effect. And I think you're right. Kudos. Major kudos. Mm-hmm. There are some opticals at the end where, you know, they've got the... Um, oh, the ast- lasers. Lasers, of course. Yeah, the lasers and also the astronauts green-screened uh, uh, behind the spaceship taking off, which really looked cool during yeah. the final battle. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got four astronauts with laser guns battling an army of green slime monsters with the rocket ship taken off in the background. It looked really good. Yeah, and that was a that was a more realized battle too because they didn't land on the station and stand there and fire. They were jumping around. They were using the flight capabilities of the suits, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really impressive. It's pretty smart. Technically, yeah. it's really smart. I mean, it, it actually felt a little bit more real than just going to stand around and fire at each other. You got to, you know, give credit to the filmmakers because mm-hmm. it would have been so much easier to have them just, you know, stand on the space station and shoot. But putting these guys on wires and swinging them around, a whole bunch of school children and giant latex <laughs> monsters, <laughs> well, you know, that's that's got to be tough coordinating all that. But awesome for the kids. Come on now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You know, I said that I like the monster design, and I do. But the monsters, 
once they show up and they start walking around, that I think is what triggers for me. Well, this is a Japanese monster movie. This was clearly shot in Japan because it's got that late sixties kaiju feel, even though they're not giant monsters. It's the late sixties kaiju feel. They're a little goofy, but I still love them. And if I could get a row of action figures of those things, I, I wouldn't have minute. <laughs> yeah, I would have them all over the house. Goofy looking eyes and all. <laughs> I, I do I do love the design. I mean, you know, they were probably as good as you were gonna get for a nineteen sixty space movie yeah. but at least they you know sure they look rather humanoid but they don't look human yes and and that i really like too many times the monster it really looks like a guy in a suit these just look like big monsters it doesn't conform and really fit the human body i don't know how those kids were walking in those things because that those it, it doesn't have human proportions well also I don't think they could see out of them, but they didn't really need to because I think their direction was just flail about, walk forward and swing your arms around. Yeah. It, because, you know, they did have arms coming out of them, but they also had the tentacles. And the tentacles were the really threatening part. Mm-hmm. And the tentacles are just, for the most part, flailing about. They're not really scary once they get in the light and they start walking around because, I mean, you could outrun them, you know? Um, <laughs> It, it's only when there's a whole lot of them, kind of like zombies. You know, once one of them you can get away from. When there's a whole bunch, well, you're kind of screwed. Um, this kind of is a zombie movie. It, yeah, it, it kind of is. It, it's like a zombie movie, a western, a siege story, a ship yeah. in a bottle story, which, which are sometimes the best way to handle a low budget film. I mean, clearly, this has got some budgetary limitations, but. Man, they really worked the hell out of their budget and gave us something enjoyable that we're talking about, what, 50-plus years, almost 50 years later oh, at yeah. this point. I think it holds up. I you know, I didn't have the experience watching it as a kid like you two, but I know I'm going to go back and watch it again. I may not wait another year. Hey, gang, I hope everybody enjoyed part one of the conversation about the movie The Green Slime with Chris McMillan and Jeff Pollier. Follow the link in the show notes to their various projects, The Shadow Over Portland and The Pollier Graveyard. I just got back from the meeting for the panels at the Living Dead Horror Convention. I'm pretty excited. Things look and sound hopeful that there's going to be some excellent Monster Kid content at this convention. They're doing a good job trying to bring in a number of different types of horror fans, modern-day horror, 80s horror, and then the classics. Of course, nothing is set in stone yet, so I really can't say anything about what kind of panels there are going to be, but it looks like I'm going to be running a Q&A with somebody that's not been announced yet. I'm pretty excited about that. And I'll be a panelist on a handful of panels. There's going to be a horror podcast panel, it sounds like. also sounds like there's going to be some specific classic horror and monster movie panels that I'm going to be involved with as well. And I got the okay. Every panel that I'm on, I have permission to record and share with people here on Monster Kid Radio if the panelists are on board with that as well. I want to drive home. It's kind of late, and I need some dinner. So why don't we go ahead and wrap up? I want to let everybody know that you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website, monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find links to everything that we have going on here in the show. Show notes to this episode, as well as every other episode. Links to every song that's appeared here on the show. Links to all the bands that have given us the okay to run their music. Links to our Patreon store, where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show a little bit financially as well. 
Our contact information is over on our website. You can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can also send us an email at our voicemail line, 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Earlier today, I got a notification that I got a voicemail from one of the listeners. So as I drive out of here and head home to Monster Kid Radio headquarters, why don't we go ahead and play that voicemail from Stephen D. Sullivan. Hey, Derek. Stephen D. Sullivan here, star of stage, screen, and no, no, wait, not really any of that, but writer of a whole lot of books and comics and games and stuff. Anyway, I was calling about the the Mummy series that you're doing. Uh, the Mummy's Tomb was the most recent one. And uh, I love the Mummy movies, but I think they're the least of the universal horror cycles in a lot of ways, basically because the story's always the same. Someone breaks into the tomb, the mummy gets stirred up, goes after, kills everybody, and the high priest falls in love with a girl that he shouldn't, therefore the mummy turns on him and he's killed, and and that's basically the whole thing. Now, in the later ones, we do get a couple of interesting twists on the princess thing, especially I think it's the last one, I don't remember what the name is, where the, the princess rises up out of the swamp. That's a great scene. And I love the movies. They are a lot of fun, but eh, kind of all the same. And the, the, the other thing you mentioned was the fact that they, they keep pushing them into the future. And I think by, if by the time you get to the end of them, if they started in 1940 and then it's 20 years and then it's 20 years and then it's 20 years, I think they'd be, well, maybe right around where we are now. But I think what they were trying to do was to keep the mummy as 20 years ahead of like 1920-some-odd when King Tut was discovered. I think that was kind of what they were going for. So they wanted people to to think that the original movie was back when T- King Tut was discovered. And, of course, you know, that, that doesn't work in sequence, but then back in the day you wouldn't see them in sequence, and that's also why they could get away with killing somebody in one movie and then having him not quite dead in the next movie. It was like the old serials. The car goes off the cliff, at the end of the serial it explodes, and the next... Uh, establishing shot of the serial the car goes off the cliff the hero rolls out then the car explodes you know and even just a week in between episodes of the serial was enough for people to kind of forget or kind of not care so when you get to six months or a year between these movies nobody cared anyway I don't care that they've got these goofy things in them I think they're wonderful Lon Chaney Jr. is awesome Tom Tyler is awesome Boris is awesome they're all great and uh, you just got to go with it. <laughs> anyway, I like mummy movies enough that I'm even buying cheapo and crazy ones. And right now I'm about to watch The Mummy's Kiss. And I'm sure it's going to be terrible, but it looks like it has beautiful women in it. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, have a great week. Have a great podcast. Talk to you soon. All right, I'm back here at Monster Kid Radio headquarters. And, yeah, Steve, I agree with you. As much as I love me a good mummy movie, a lot of times it is pretty much the same story over and over and over again. Nicholas and I talked a little bit about that uh, being a a precursor to the slasher films, which, again, same story over and over and over again. I still love them, though. There's something about the visuals, the Egyptian setting, the Egyptology, the mummy itself. There's just something about that that aesthetic that speaks to me that i love and you know i just can't get enough of i have seen the mummy's kiss my friend from 2003 directed by donald f glutt who is one of us he's a monster kid he made a bunch of amateur films growing up 
and he's a writer and a filmmaker today. He loves dinosaurs. If you follow him on Facebook, you'll see a lot of pictures of dinosaurs as well as beautiful women around them because, well, he also likes his beautiful women. The Mummy's Kiss. Uh, you know, I watched it because I love my mummy movies, but it's not one that I think I'm going to go back and watch again. Just saying. And listeners, you all know Stephen D. Sullivan, right? I mean, he's been on the show in the past. You are going to his website, stephendsullivan.com, right? Right? And that's Stephen with a P-H. You know what? Just go to sdsullivan.com. That'll take you there as well. Again, thanks for calling in. And again, everybody, the voicemail line. And I realized earlier I called it an email. It's a voicemail line. It's area code 503 and then 479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode with me. We're going to be back in two days to keep talking about the green slime with Chris McMillan and Jeff Pollier. That's going to be fun. I'm having a good time talking about this movie. It's something that's been in the works for a while, so I'm glad it happened, and I'm happy to bring it to you. And what about that song, huh, from the Tiki Creeps, the song Green Slime Are Coming? It's from the album Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. You can find the Tiki Creeps at their Bandcamp site, tikicreeps.bandcamp.com. You can check out that album or the new album, Idol Worship, or you can check them out live at the first annual Long Beach Tiki Social and Tiki Swap Meet. That's happening on August 30th from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. The Tiki Creeps are going to be playing along with the Ding Dong Devils and Aloha from Hell. It's a 21-year-old plus event and free, but you do have to get tickets to get in. Now, this is at Roxanne's Cocktail Lounge at 1115 East Wardlow Road in Long Beach, California. You can find out more about them at RoxannesLounge.com. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Green Slimer coming. That belongs to the Tiki Creeps. Again, the album is Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. You can find them at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook and tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days. Why is it so important that you want to contact the governments of our Earth? Because of Jeff. Because all you of Earth are idiots. Now you just hold on, Buster. No, you hold on.